Our reading today is in Judges chapter 8 from verses 29. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Abyssalites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Belbereth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is, Gideon, in return for all the good he had done to Israel. Amen. Wake up. All right. Uh, please open your Bibles if you don't have them open already to Judges chapter 9. Uh, Judges chapter 9. And let's pray uh, that God would speak to us from His Word as we consider His Word together. And uh, hopefully I won't blow your ears off. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for this time uh, that we can have. Uh, in your word, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us. We pray, Lord, um, as we listen, that we would not only hear your word, but live it out in our lives. Lord, we need you. We need your strength. We need your power today. May we live for you and you alone. In your precious name, amen. Amen. I'm going to swap Bibles here because I left mine in my car and my dad gave me his, so let's swap out here. It's like missing my right arm when I don't have the actual Bible that I speak from, so I don't know, it just, it just helps me. So um, Here we are in Judges chapter 9, and what Luana read to us was this, that Gideon has now died. If you look at just chapter 8, verse 33, it says this, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. When the leader dies, we discover in this book, whenever the leader dies, everything crumbles. In other words, everything falls apart whenever the leader dies. And what happens in this passage as we come to this passage is this. The leader has died, which means there is a gap in leadership which means there is a space for power, which means there is a space for power and control. And whenever anybody sees a space for power and control, what happens? People want it. If you see a space in leadership and there's a space for power and control, and I can get that space, I will strive after that. A lot of us are like that. We want control. And so you've seen this in, in you know, over, over in England, there's been this search for the prime minister. And as soon as the prime minister went away, what happened? There was a gap in the leadership, and everybody ran for that gap to take control. In Brazil, Luana's home, homeland right now, they're voting for a president. There is a gap of power, and everybody is fighting for 
control. Whenever there is a gap, someone wants that power, someone wants that control. Now, Gideon has died, and that has left a space for leadership. And Gideon has named his son what? Abimelech. Abimelech means, my dad is king. Well, his dad has died. So guess who wants to be king now? Abimelech. And so Abimelech sees this space for power, except Abimelech has got a problem. He wants control, except there's 70 other sons competing for that place of power. So in order to get control, Gideon's going to have to do something, isn't he? And so Gideon takes things, in, or Abimelech is going to have to do something. And so Abimelech takes things into his own hands. In chapter 9, verse 1, it says this, Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all the seventy of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you. And remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. What do you want? Do you want foreigners to run, rule over you, 70 of them? Or do you want one of your own people, one of the Canaanite people? Do you want me to rule? Like, who would you prefer to rule over you? Your family members or me? And here we see the difference between Abimelech and all these other leaders that we've seen before. Abimelech is trying to get his own control. Abimelech is a self-appointed leader. And things always go wrong when someone tries to appoint themselves as leader. Who appointed Othniel as the judge? It was the Lord who appointed Othniel as the judge. Who appointed Ehud as the judge? It was the Lord who appointed Ehud as the judge. Who appointed Gideon as the judge? It was the Lord who appointed Gideon as the judge. But here you have Abimelech trying to get his own way and trying to gain control. Abimelech is going to be a self-appointed leader. His strategy is this. First he tries manipulation, and then he is going to go for murder. It says this in verse 3. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem and their and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for he said, he, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-bereth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house in Oprah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. So in order to gain power, in order to gain his own way, in order to get control, he manipulates and he murders. He does whatever it takes to get control. He is the first self-appointed leader we see in this book. And one of the things I think um, this can help us with is this, that that always things tend to go wrong when people appoint themselves as leaders. Because when you're appointing yourself as leader, what do you want? You want power and you want control. 
That is one of the real things that encourages me about this church and the fact that we have membership in this church is that in Passage Baptist Church, you can never have and you will never have a self-appointed leader. In fact, when we started this church, we started this church with members. There was 12 of us that formed the membership of this church, and the 12 of us that formed the members of this church decided to form the church before we chose the leaders of the church. So we formed the church, the 12 members formed Passage Baptist Church, and then we had no leaders for about 10 minutes. And with those no leaders, for about 10 minutes, two others were nominated. Now, it could have gone really wrong. I mean, when Brendan's name went up, it was going to be fine. My name was a bit dodgy. We weren't too sure. But the reality is, I couldn't appoint myself as the leader of this church. Brendan couldn't appoint himself as the leader of the church. It's up to the membership and the body to appoint the leaders in the church so that no one can say, hey, you know what? I think I'm really gifted. I'm just going to lead you all. You know, I'm gifted in leadership. I'm going to lead you all. No, no one can do that. We believe and hold to the priesthood of all believers. And if we hold to the priesthood of all believers, that means that no one can go and try and gain control for themselves. It is so important. That's why we have one of the reasons we have membership. It's also one of the reasons we don't have just one leader. We have two. What that means is that I can't get my way all the time. And Brendan can't get his way all the time. In fact, a lot of the time, we'll, we'll talk together about what we hear from the membership, and then we'll talk together about what we can decide, and, and, and sometimes we, we don't always see eye to eye. Can you imagine that? And, and we pray about it, and then we move forward. And that is a good thing because it means that no one assumes ultimate control. And what happens here for Abimelech is this. He sees a space. He sees a space for control, and he'll do whatever it takes to get it. He'll manipulate and he'll murder because he is what we would call a control freak. He'll do whatever it takes to gain the control that he wants. And if we're honest, I think there is a little bit, I mean, we'll we'll judge him, we'll say manipulate and murder, I'd never do that. But if we're honest, there probably is a little bit of control freak in all of us, isn't there? A little bit? You know, even as, even as a parent, I've noticed this, like, like with, the, with, with the two lads out in camp, Talitha and Simeon are out in camp with, with the leaders, and we know some of the leaders who've gone from this church who, who are out at camp right now. And, and I must say, you know, I tried to start finding out, like, what was going on, what was happening each day, and, you know, could you try and get some sneaky texts? I know I'm not supposed to do it. But, but when, and, and you could ca- cloak it in all this, you know, I love my kids. I'm, look, they have like 25 leaders. They're going to be okay. But I kind of want to control the situation and manipulate it a little bit and make sure everything really is okay. All of us, we have this little bit of control freak in us. This is one of the reasons we try and live a very independent life as well. We, we don't ask people for advice because w- if we ask people for advice, they might advise us to do something that we don't want to do. And what we ultimately want in our life is control and autonomy, so we don't seek to ask advice from other people. That is a form of control, to make sure we've got it all together. So we try and control others. 
we try and control our own life. And, have you noticed, other people try and control you? In this world, there is a fight for power and control. And one of the ways this world tries to control us is through our speech. Have you noticed that? This world is trying to control our speech and what we will say because there is power in words. And if you can control what people say, then you have a lot of power and rule over them. And this is what is going to happen in this world to Christians, even preachers, even speakers in this world. What is going to happen to us is there's going to be more and more control. In your workplace, people are trying to control not only what you say, but what you believe and what you're going to do. And so you'll find now in your workplaces, they are going to start making more and more documents that you have to sign in order to say, I am going to live this way. I am going to speak this way. I am going to do these things. And they'll name it under, this is the ethical values of what our workplace is going to hold. But some of us are going to have to sign things and speak in such a way that is actually dishonoring to our God. The world is trying to control us. And so there is this this battle for control, and I think what we need to do in our own lives is this. When we see Abimelech, you can say, oh, Abimelech's just after control and power. I would never do anything like that. And yet, there is a little bit of control freak in all of us. So I'd ask you today, I think it would be good to survey your life and look at your life and see, where are the areas that I really still want control? Where are the areas that I really still want to rule and reign? And give them over to the Lord. Because to be a Christian is to say, Lord, I am not in control anymore. You are. That's what it means to be a Christian. To confess that He is the King, that He is the Lord of Lords, and He has ultimate control. Control, the pursuit for control, have you noticed this? It never satisfies When you pursue control, be it in your house, in your relationships, in your workplace, when you pursue it, do you know what happens with control? You can never have enough of it. It never satisfies. You know, you try and and control control your kids, and eventually you kind of have to send them off to school. And eventually what's going to happen with with all of our children is this. They're going to go. And we're going to be left. Ultimately, we will lose the control that we have. So what are we going to have to do? We're going to have to trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Of your loved ones, you don't have control over them, ultimately. You don't know what's going to happen today or tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen when they go to work. You don't know what's going to happen when they cross the road. You don't have ultimate control. And what happens when we say, Lord, you are in control, I am not, is that we step into the place of trusting him more and more. And with Abimelech, he is after this power. He gets the 70 sons, and he kills them all on one stone. Weird detail, but it's there. He takes the 70 sons, kills them all on one stone, and he thinks, right, I have got ultimate control. Except the problem is, Even when you think you have it, sometimes you don't. And so we hear at the end of verse 5, it says this, But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left 
for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. He thinks that he kills all the sons. He thinks that he has ultimate control, except there is one son left, one problem child that he can't deal with. See, the moment we think we have control is the moment we realize ultimately we don't. You can't control everything in your life. It is a dissatisfying pursuit. And what Jotham does is he, Jotham tells this parable and this prophecy. And the parable that Jotham tells, let me just explain it to you, is this. He says, you're all like trees in a forest. And all these trees, they look for one big tree to be their king. And so the trees in the forest, they look for this one big tree and and they approach the olive tree, he says. And they say, olive tree, will you be our king? The olive tree says, no, I'm not going to be your king. And then they approach the fig tree in this parable from verses 7 to down to verse 15. They approach the fig tree and they say to the fig tree, will you be our king? The fig tree says, no way, I'm not going to be your king. And then they approach the vine and they say to the vine, vine, will you be our king? So they go from the best to the least. Okay, vine, will you be our king? And the vine says, no way, I'm not going to be your king. And then Jotham says, and then the trees went and they approached the bramble. And they said to the bramble, the thorny bramble, will you be our king? The bramble says, yes, I'll be your king. And Jotham says, you've got the bramble. And the bramble's going to hurt. And the bramble's not going to be as good as the olive tree. You're missing out. You're trying to take control. And you've elected a foolish king and it is going to come back to bite you. So he tells this parable, and then he tells them this prophecy. Later down in verse 19, he says this to all the people as he stands up on the mountain. He says, he's already told them, you've got the bramble. And then in verse 19, he says, if then, if you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. So if you've acted well, if you've acted in a righteous way by selecting this king, then you can rejoice. You have nothing to worry about. But then he says in verse 20, but if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. So what he says to him in the prophecy, if you've selected the king well, if you've done a righteous thing, then go ahead and rejoice. But if you haven't done a righteous thing, he says in this prophecy, if you haven't done a righteous thing, then let fire devour you. Let fire come between Abimelech and Shechem because Abimelech and Shechem, they joined together to kill the 70 sons on one stone in order for one man to gain the kingship because they ultimately wanted control. So Jotham is saying, either you're going to rejoice or you're going to have fire. What do you think they're going to have? Fire. That's what's going to come. And you wonder, where is God in all this? And God steps in And it says something that's quite confusing to us. Verse 22. Abimelech ruled over Israel, 
three years. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the seventy sons of Jeroboam might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. God steps in. And in the verse, verse 23, it says that God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and Shechem. And that verse can be very discouraging to us, maybe confusing to us, that God, the good God, would send an evil spirit. This verse doesn't discourage me. What this verse tells me is this, that God Almighty, He is in ultimate control, ultimate control of everything. Evil people will do all of their evil things, but our God Almighty, He sits on the throne. And our God Almighty, He is in ultimate control of absolutely everything. Even when we think down here, we're doing all, you know, like we actually think we've got this life together and we're doing our little things. God is in ultimate sovereign control over absolutely everything. That's what this verse tells me. It doesn't discourage me. It does confuse me. But this verse tells me that He is ultimately in control. Now some would say with this verse that God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and Shechem, and, and what he really sent was, was disunity. So they interpret it and say, God sent a spirit of disunity between, you know, Shechem and Abimelech. That's what God sent. But the difficulty with that is our major translations in English still translate it as an evil spirit. And also, not only have you got this passage to deal with and God sending an evil spirit, but you've also got 1 Samuel 16, verse 14. And 1 Samuel 16, verse 14 says, God sent an evil spirit to Saul to torment him. And what that tells me is God is in ultimate control over everything. Now, let's be clear. God doesn't commit evil. God doesn't do evil. God is not the author of evil. God is not pleased with evil. But God can and God does use the evil actions of other people for His purposes, plan, and glory. God doesn't look at the actions of evil people and say, what am I going to do now? Just don't know what I'm going to do. No. God is in ultimate control of all these things. And I'll tell you how I know God is in ultimate control of all these things. Because in Joseph's story, when you look at Joseph's story, what happened to Joseph? Evil people did evil things to Joseph. They, they, they threw him into a pit. His brothers threw him into a pit. They sold him into slavery. They faked his death. They were against Joseph. And yet when Joseph looks back on his life with his brothers, he says this to them. 
Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. You did evil, but God did good. And in Genesis 50 verse 20, it says this, As for you, you meant it for evil against me, he says this to his brothers, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people might be saved. So here's what's happening. At the same time, here's what's happening. Evil people are doing evil things and think they are ultimately in control. But God, though He is not part of that evil, though He is not an author of that evil, though He is not doing that evil, God is in ultimate control and can use those evil things for His great purposes and plans. You say, this doesn't sound right. But what about Job? I could give many more examples, many more examples. What about Job? Satan comes to God and says, there's no way this guy is going to be blameless and good if, you, if bad things happen in his life. No way. So God says, go, try it. And the only way Satan was able to get at Job is because God was ultimately in control. And Satan gets at Job and all these things happen to Job. He, he loses his sheep, he loses his oxen, he loses his donkeys, he loses his fields, he loses it, all his children. His wife curses him out. And yet God used all those evil actions to bring Job to a place where Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord uses those evil actions and those friends in Job's life to bring Job to the place where Job realizes, God says to him, were you there in the foundation of the world? At the end of the book of Job, Job is humble, and God uses those evil actions for his purposes. God is not the author of evil. God hates evil. But God can use the evil actions of people for his plans and his purposes. You say, that doesn't sound right. Well, what about Jesus? What about Jesus? Did Satan commit evil actions against Jesus? Yes. Did Judas commit evil actions against Jesus? Yes. Did the soldiers commit evil actions against Jesus? Yes. But who was in control? The one who they were nailing to the cross. Because all of it was part of his great purpose and plan to save his people. And so you have in Acts 2, 23, it says this, Jesus delivered up, was delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus was crucified and delivered up by the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. But you crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless men. It was part of God's plan. It was part of God's ultimate plan and foreknowledge. And yet who is ultimately responsible for the sin? You nailed him to the cross. You killed him. God is in control of absolutely everything. God is sovereign. 
some of us have a view of God, that God is kind of like this, this old age, uh, middle aged man who's, who's fallen asleep and, and laying in, in the morning. He wakes up late, he flicks on the news, he says, I wonder what they're all up to today. I wonder what all these people I created are up to today. Some of us have that view of God. I wonder what Satan is up to today. I wonder what Satan is going to do in this world today. Yes, he is allowed have some power. But all of it is for the purposes and plans of God. Because God is ultimately in control of all these things. And you say, no, he's not. I'm in control. Really? Are you really in control? Here's a few questions I have for us. And there are just a few. It took me five minutes to make these questions. So you could probably add on more. Are we really in control? Number one, are you in control of the weather? No, not in control of the weather. You wish you were in control of the weather. Did you see it this morning? We're not in control of the weather. Are you in control of the future? No, I'm not in control of the future. You might have plans for later on today, but you're not in control of the future. Are you in control of what happened in the past? No. Are you even in control of what hap is happening in the present? Like right now? No. Your, your feelings, your emotions, your thoughts, as I'm speaking, stuff is happening to you, and you're not feeling all that in control of even the present. You say, no, Shane, I'm in control. Not really. We're not in control as much as we like to think we are. Are you in control of natural disasters? No. Are you in control of, of the seasons and the time of the year? And are you in control of the passing of time? No. Are you in control with those who you are related to? Unfortunately, no. Are you in control of the family that you were born into? No, you're not in control. Are you in control of your natural abilities, your looks and your personalities when you were born? No, you're not in control. Are you in control of what will happen to your children this week, next week, or the week after? No, you're not ultimately in control. Are you in control of when you will die? You're not in control. Were you in control of when you were born? No, you are not in control. Are you in control of what other people think and what other people believe? No, you're not in control. Are you in control of your health, your illnesses and diseases? No, you are not in control. So what happens? Do we just go about this life and hope it all pans out in the end? Or do we trust in God? And believe that He has got all of this, all of this under control. And that our Lord is going to come back again and rule and reign. Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you today to go home and humble yourself before the Lord. And say to Him, Lord, I am sorry for when I've tried to take control of all things. Lord, I trust in You. Lead me and guide me. That's the problem for Abimelech. God manages both sides. God is in control of all of it. And that's the problem for him. And so the fire comes between them. And let me summarize it for you in this way. There's all these ambushes that they come against each other. So verse 25, it says this, and the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along that way, and it was told to Abimelech. So Shechem set an ambush for Abimelech, a surprise attack. 
And Abimelech then sets an ambush for Shechem, verse 34. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. So God has sent this evil spirit between these two people, either a spirit of disunity or this actual evil spirit. So what God is doing, in effect, is He's redirecting evil to fight against evil so that it will implode against itself. And so Abimelech ambushes Shechem, Shechem ambushes Abimelech, and then we see that ambush again in verse 42. It says this, on the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told, and he took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the field. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city. He rose against them and killed them. There has been disunity. This fire has come between Shechem and Abimelech. They are going against each other because of their plan. And so it all comes down to this final point where Abimelech gets to the place of Shechem and all the leaders of Shechem, they get into this tower. And Abimelech, it says in verse 49, so every one of the people cut down his bundle and, fo and following Abimelech put against the stronghold, this tower, and they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. He turns them against themselves. Who's in control? Shechem aren't in control. It looks like Abimelech is in control, except Abimelech, there is fire waiting for him. Abimelech gets to this place called Thebes, and when he gets to Thebes, or Thebes, when he gets to Thebes, he finds people in a tower, and he's getting ready to set that tower on fire until, verse 52, and Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire, and a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to a young man, with his armor bearer and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. This guy is the quintessential control freak. Don't let them say a woman killed me. I'm going to be in control of my death. Come, get the sword. What's more embarrassing, to hear that a woman killed you or to have this story written down for centuries that would be repeated again and again that you didn't want people to hear that a woman killed you and now we know the plan altogether. By the way, the women in this story, in the book of Judges, they're pretty brutal, aren't they? Aren't they? Jail with Sisera, she gets the tent peg. What does she do? Crushes his head. And then, who kills who with a stone now? He's going to light the tower on fire. This man who's killed the 70 sons on this stone. And this woman at the top of the tower just grabs a stone, hurls it, and crushes his skull. 
Who's ultimately in control? It is not Abimelech. It is not Shechem. It is not Satan. We cannot believe that Satan has ultimate freedom. Like, like if, you, if you carry that out, if, does Satan have ultimate freedom? No way. He doesn't. The Lord has his plans and his purposes and is going to use them for his glory. And so you could read the story and say, oh, randomly a woman just threw a stone and crushed his head. Or you could say, no, God is in control. God has a plan. God has a purpose. And that is the conclusion to this account. Verse 56, thus God returned the evil of Abimelech which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads upon them and came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. Who is in control in Judges chapter 9? God is. They are doing all this stuff, ambushing each other and lighting each other's towers on fire and throwing stones at each other. But who is ultimately in control? It is God. And so when we get home this morning and think about our lives, we can know this. Our God is in control. And one day, sin will be paid for. One day, sin will be paid for, and it will be paid for on Judgment Day. And either your sin will be paid by you in the judgment of hell, or your sin will be paid by Jesus through His death on the cross. And the only way to have your sin paid for by Jesus is if you trust in Him and say, you're in control, not me. How amazing is it that those evil soldiers thought we are nailing to the cross and we are ending his life. He is done. But they were not in control of his life. Why? He rose from the dead. Can you imagine being one of those soldiers, seeing him raised from the dead? I thought I killed him. I thought he's done. No. God is always, always, always in control. Let's trust Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word and this time that we can have in Your Word. And we pray that we'll trust You this day, that You have a plan and that You have Your purposes for that plan. We trust in Your sovereignty. Lord, we don't always get it. We do not understand it always, and yet, Lord, we know and confess that you are God and that we are not. And Lord, help us in those moments where we try and take control of our life. We need you, Lord Jesus. We need your help. In your name.